0: Travelcast, episode 220. The Travelcast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. You'll have to excuse me if my voice sounds a little stuffy this week. I've got a bit of a chest cold, or what people called in the 16th century, a couple days to live. We'll press on, though. Again this week, we're brought to you by J.R. Hammantation's anthology of dark fiction, You Shall Never Know Security. I interviewed J.R. about the anthology earlier this week, thought I'd play a chunk of it here on the show to give you listeners a feel for it. I think any writers and readers of weird dark fiction out there should find it interesting. Or if you'd rather just skip forward to this week's three-story trifecta special, just click forward to the next chapter in your player.
1: So I'm yeah. speaking here to author uh, J.R. Hammontation about his uh, new anthology that just came out, You Shall Never Know Security. We've been uh, pimping out here on the podcast, on the Travelcast. Um, I'm going to ask him a couple questions about the uh, the anthology and uh, give you guys a, yep. a better idea of what's going on with this this wonderful dark fiction here. Yeah, I've read the thing. Yeah. It's, it's great. I got my interest perked in it because I really loved your story, Wonder, that we, we ran on the show for the last trifecta special. Um, actually, this this is going on the Trifecta special too, the, uh, episode two twenty. Oh. So yeah, actually one I'm Trifecta a, I'm a behind.
2: Trifecta MVP.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, that was such a great yeah. story. I mean, it was so so creepy. The the, the imagery of the, the the spider wife on the wall, just kind of staring down and pouncing down on the guy's throat. Pretty freaky stuff. you got a twisted um, mind, my friend.
2: <laughs> thank you. Uh, remember the inspiration for that story? I was walking back to my shitty apartment in Berkeley, California. I remember, like, some guy gave me a really dirty look, but then I wrote that story in like an hour, because apparently the punishment for giving me a dirty look is the death of your family. But,
1: <laughs> the horrible, uh, horrible death of your, of your family spread out over yeah, a long period. Yeah. That just makes it all the sweeter. Yeah, about the uh, inspiration of that one story just based on a look, you know, a bad look on the street, what, what, what inspired you, to, I guess, in general, to put these stories into an anthology?
2: Um, you know, I, there are 13 stories in that anthology. Most of them have been published elsewhere. Some of them are new, and um, uh, just kind of a way to like memorialize the stories that I still have. You know. Yeah. And uh, it's been pretty good. People the response have been pretty good. We've got a lot of good reviews so far. More coming in. Uh, it's called uh, You
1: Shall Never Know Security. Uh, what what got you that title right there? Where'd that come from?
2: Well, one, you shall never know security is kind of like my overriding life philosophy. Um, but two, it's there's a book called um, Looking Backward which is kind of like 1800s socialist tract. It's actually, supposedly it's the third most influential American novel of all time, kind of about this like socialist society. But the, and one scene in the book it involves him going to and fro back in time, and he's kind of back in the industrial, desperate, super capitalist society, and he's walking around the like squalid streets, and there's like that passage, there's a certain passage, in which is, you know, watching people like the rich and the poor. They all have their ear attuned to the specter of uncertainty. You know, it's like no matter who you are, uh, what you do, you can never be sure that your, you know, your son will not be the servant of your servant, or that your daughter will not have to sell herself for bread. You know, you, know, you shall never know security. Thought that I really like, when well, an impressionable 18-year-old, when I read that, and I was like, wow, one day I'm gonna name an anthology that. Nine years later, here we are. Here we are. There's an underlying thematic element to all three of them that I feel really, you know, comes to apex with the concluding story. Hmm. Um, So there's kind of a a theme, you know, and like you could kind of pluck out a philosophy behind all of it.
1: Yeah, you mentioned earlier too, um, you know, like you like authenticity uh, from from authors. Are there any uh, books or authors that have influenced you a lot in that kind of philosophy?
2: Um. Well, like the the easy answer is like. H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's an easy, but it's also a true answer. I mean, I'm a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft, but it's I, I like reading nonfiction about Lovecraft or like his letters more than his fiction itself. I could pick out individual stories that really inspired me, like the, the most like hate-filled, ranting stories from certain authors, like um, The Whimpering of Whip Dogs by Harlan Ellison, Confessions of a Pornographer Shroud by Clyde Barker back in the early days when he was good. Who else? Uh, Blood Sun by Matheson, Bright Spot by Theodore Sturgeon, like kind of like resonant, emotional stories that you could really feel like kind of meant something to the author. Those are the stories that like really hit home with me the most. Do you
1: uh, do you uh, remember what, what particularly sparked your interest in writing, uh, I guess even
2: particularly dark fiction, but just in writing in general? Kind of odd. Uh, so I guess when I was growing up, I just, you know, I have... Not to, like, give the subs or it'll have, like, medical problems and all these other difficulties and just have, like, a pessimistic view of the world that I, found, I kind of found reflected in some of dark fiction when I was younger. I used to read a fair amount of dark fiction, like, you know, your H.P. Lovecraft, your Poe, your Stephen King, your... But I guess I went into dark fiction just because it's all I knew, you know? For some reason, like, I just picked it up and just kept going with it. I'd, I'd read it when I was younger and I just that mindset kind of stuck with me, um... Like, the other, like, what is non-genre fiction? Like, New Yorker fiction?
1: Like, it's, like, boring. You're talking to the editor of a of a weird fiction podcast here, so I'm totally behind you on that.
2: <laughs> yeah, and also, I've always been interested in science fiction. It's like, I don't know who said it, but it was, someone said, like, science fiction is just, like, the fiction of ideas, and I think that's really true,
1: you know? Do you find, uh, when you're writing, is there anything particularly challenging? Do you do you have, uh, you know, writer's block, the typical things that writers experience when they're trying to come out with ideas? Um... There's
2: an author named Ted Klein who I really like a lot, and he wrote like, what did he write, one book, four novellas maybe, and then like a bunch of short stories. And he'd always say like, he hates writing. He's really good at it, but he's like, he hates it. And I have something of a similarity with him in that like, a great difficulty. I wouldn't say it's writer's block, but just like, I always wanted the story to be so perfect that I have, I have difficulty actually implementing it. Because I'm like, oh, this isn't going to be perfect, there's going to be something wrong with it. You know, they always say endings are the hardest part, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, actually one thing I'm proud about is I'm proud of these 13 stories. I don't think there's an ending, an ending in there. I don't like, um, but yeah, I have a bunch of stories where it's like, I'm halfway through and I'm like, I don't know how this is going. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, a lot of the stories, the ending has kind of a, um, I don't want to say like a hook. It's definitely not always a twist, but, uh, it's like a, a powerful
2: last line, you know? Yeah. I, thanks. I appreciate sure. it. That's one thing I got from Matt, like Richard Matheson. I feel like he'd really be good at that one last line. Mm-hmm. I feel like the the, the sent the sentiment or like emotion that the last line conveys is like, I'm miserable. <laughs> right. Do you find that when you're um, writing, do you uh, do you plot
1: out the whole idea and story, or do you kind of is the story organically develop as you're writing it?
2: I normally have the beginning, middle, and end in mind. Like that's why I think some of the like my stories kind of end on a, a decent note. Because, like I kind of know where they're going, and I I want I I know the effect I want at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Was well, there anything um, else you want uh, listeners
1: to know about the, the anthology here? You shall never know. Security. Yeah. Um, the
2: one thing I could say about it, if I wasn't me and i had read this, I would think like, wow, this is really something special. I. It would get me reading dark fiction again, just because. I mean, these stories. I, I would describe them. I think they're emotionally resonant. I think they're. They spark. You know, ideas. They spark self-reflection I just think they're really interesting good stories um, I think people think so also yeah you know we hope we
1: can do that I think it's uh, it's it's got the travel stamp of approval you folks should uh, head out to amazon.com check out you shall never know security by J.R. Hamitation you will not yeah. be uh, you won't be secure you won't be disappointed
2: how good that we're in agreement it would be really awkward if at the end you're like you know <laughs> it. but it's good to know well junior it's been great talking to you great no I appreciate it
1: thanks Take care. Bye. bye
0: to this week's showcase of stories. This week, Trifecta 18. Trifectas are specials we run every now and then that feature three different stories by three different authors read by three different storytellers, unique in and of themselves, but also based around some theme. The theme of this trifecta? Getting the boot, stories of rejection and elimination. Lots of things get the boot in my book, Licorice jelly beans, because they taste like chewy farts. Pluto, because it was recently discovered that it's not actually a dog. And Quasimodo, because imitation-modo just isn't classy. First off, we bring you an action-packed story by Richard Weems called Bad Habit. Mr. Weems wanted to be a child actor, but when he hit 40, he realized he had to finally give that dream the boot. His works appeared in necrotic tissue, everyday fiction, and other print and online venues. So without further ado, we bring you Bad Habit by Richard Weems. Sister Hester Kahn chased the naked man with the heart on and the butcher knife through the park. Women shrieked, children gawked, and pigeons flew. Her tunic never slowed her down. She was a professional, and she quickly closed the gap, making a final desperate flying tackle around the man's knees. They crashed to the ground, the knife tumbling out of his hand. The naked man was covered in sweat, and God only knew what other fluids, and wriggled out of Sister Hester's grasp like a flopping fish. He lunged for the knife, but she grabbed hold of the man's right ankle with the same vice-like grip she'd used on 12-year-old's ears when she taught Covenant of the Sacred Heart. Combining the lord's strength with her own, she pulled the pervert back towards her, his fingers just barely missing the handle of the butcher's knife. She pounced on him, rolling on the ground, both of them getting tangled up in the folds of the sister's habit. She ended up on top of him, her face near his abdomen, when she felt something touch her cheek. He still had a hard-on, it maybe even had grown an inch. His penis bobbed at her, the blue veins thick and ropey, an eight-inch wand of anger and testosterone that seemed to wink at her. She recoiled in horror. Seeing his opportunity, the naked pervert punched her in the face, leaped to his feet, and took off. Sister Hester quickly recovered, she was a professional, and cursed herself for her failure to subdue the man. She silently asked for forgiveness immediately after, and gave chase once more. She ignored the brief flash of doubt. Mother Superior had pointedly told her not to get involved in anything that didn't have to do with her duties ministering to the homeless. But Sister Hester Kahn could not let a wrong go unchallenged, no matter how minor. It had been the cause of friction at Sacred Heart, and led to her being transferred to St. Joseph. As she pumped her long legs furiously, her habit flowed behind her like the avenging angel, blue eyes narrowed in determination. Sister Hester reasoned that a naked man with a butcher knife was not a minor wrong. The man was slowing down, and she could hear his tortured breathing as she gained on him. The sister noted with a grim satisfaction that his hard-on also appeared to be losing steam. The naked man stumbled and she tackled him once more, the momentum carrying them into a cart loaded up with knockoff purses and pirated screenplays. Purses and improperly bound papers flew everywhere. Sister Hester snatched up one of the screenplays. She quickly rolled it up into a tight tube and advanced on the fallen man as he tried to scramble backwards. I have rights, you, you can't. She swatted the naked man's penis. He screamed, go, oh, none brutality and placed his hands over his now withering penis in the hopes that the poor shriveled thing could avoid her wrath. She began hitting him, each swing of the rolled up screenplay punctuated with an admonition. You're an abomination, whack, in the eyes, whack, of God, whack. Sister Hester continued beating the naked pervert, black and blue marks and paper cuts blossoming all over the now screaming man. She finally had to be pulled off him by the Kenyan vendor whose cart was overturned, and two others, one of whom was an atheist, and took the opportunity to smile knowingly and smugly at the onlookers. Mother Superior glowered. She was a hefty woman with a resemblance to Teddy Roosevelt and a penchant for Oreos. A lot of Oreos. Do you have any idea how much your little stunt today cost us? Sister Hester returned the glare with one of her own. Mother Superior was just an administrator with no knowledge of what it was actually like ministering on the streets. The man was in the bushes and you ruined over $200 of purses and $40 of screenplays and we were hit with a fine for littering. I, I heard the police say that the vendor didn't have a permit, so permits and naked men are not our problem. They're the police's problem. He, he had a butcher's knife. I don't care if he had a machine gun. If he had threatened a package of Oreos, I bet you'd care. Sister Hester tried to calm herself. I saw a crime being committed. As a nun, as a human being, I have the right and power to... No one gave you the power to take matters into your own hands. I answer to a higher power." Mother Superior stood up. You may be married to God, but you work for me. Sister Hester regarded the raging Mother Superior for a long moment, her gaze never wavering. With slow determination, she removed her white coif and threw it onto Mother Superior's desk. She turned. Con! She flung open the door. Con! Sister Hester slammed the door behind her. Con! Sister Hester was freelance now. Our next story is called Tags, and it comes to us from Andrew Gudgel. Andrew's been in love with words his whole life. He currently lives in Asia with his wife and a looming avalanche of books. His fictions appeared in Writers of the Future, Escape Pod, and Flash Fiction Online. The is read to you by Kimmy Alexander. Kimmy's a writer, voice actress, and podcaster whose award-nominated podcast, Tale Chasing, a show for urban fantasy readers and writers, is now in its third year. Guardians, her podcast novel about a bodyguard drawn into a murder mystery with supernatural elements, launched in 2009. A native of Kansas, she currently resides in New Jersey and refuses to confirm or deny rumors that she's seen the first two Twilight movies at least ten times each. Whew. All right, we bring you... Tags by Andrew Gudgel.
3: Denny went three minutes, 32 seconds before she couldn't take it anymore, Mel said, staring at me. You think you can beat her, April? It wasn't a question. It was a challenge. Mel was my best friend. But last week she'd uploaded a vidbit of her brother snarking milk out his nose, and it went viral. 50,000 hits a day, and suddenly she was all stuck up and bossy. Even the tag that hovered to the left of her head said that she was now taking bids on corporate sponsorship. I stared back. No problem. Tabitha told me it has this kind of Zendo effect. I glanced blinked at the definition of Zendo, a hall for meditation. It didn't quite fit, but it made me think of serene, quiet, and white walls. Mel saw my momentary pause and gave me a condescending-looking smile. That smirk made me want to beat Denny's time even more, just to prove that I could. time you're ready, I said, touching a finger to the earpiece of my glasses. A black and white cube appeared, twirling slowly in the upper left corner of my vision, below the timestamp and my current geochords. A download confirmation chimed in my ear. "'You'll have to do a hard boot afterwards. "'It completely crashes your glasses.' "'Mel gave me another one of those smiles. "'Anytime you're ready,' she said, her tone mocking me. "'Bitch. "'I wouldn't be that snotty if I was the one that was famous.' "'I looked at the door to my room, and the tag told me it was locked. "'The Mom Watcher program I'd secretly bought online "'so that she was still blocks away.' Stuck in traffic. Here we go. Jaws clenched. I looked at the black and white cube, then blinked twice to run it. It was like being naked in public. All of a sudden, there wasn't a single tag anywhere in the room. No content and number of item info when I looked at my dresser. No outside temperature when I looked at the window pane. The posters on the wall were mute. No friends list. No newsfeed. No inbox. Nothing. I gasped, suffocating, drowning in silent blankness. How you doing, April? Weird. When I looked at Mel, I could actually see the glasses perched on her face, light from the window making blobs on the lenses. My heart felt like a hummingbird and my hands were sweating, but I had no biofeed, and there wasn't even a timestamp when I looked up and left. I swallowed hard. Fine. How long have I been offline? One minute, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, an eternity already, but I wasn't about to tell Mal how scared I was. Instead, I turned toward my dresser. Maybe if I looked at the things on top and concentrated on each one in turn, the time would go faster. I went over. Scattered across the brown wood were a bunch of souvenirs. On the far left was a paper-thin seashell. I picked it up. It was fan-shaped and shiny inside. On the back, bone white with scattered pale purple spots. I concentrated and tried to remember why it was there. No geocords to give me the location, but the place had been called something-something beach. It had been hot when I picked it up, but it wasn't in the past couple of months, so it must have been last year. Mel had been there. Dad had taken me and Mel to Something Something Beach last summer. Why this particular shell, though, I couldn't remember. At the time, it had seemed important, though. Then I remembered. Mel had picked it up for me. Best friends forever. After Something Something Beach, Dad had taken us to a restaurant to eat. There had been ice cream after that, but with no tags, I couldn't look up the details. The beach name, the restaurant, the flavor of the ice cream and I couldn't remember on my own. Drowning in silent blackness, suddenly everything including my vision became all fuzzy. Jesus, she's crying, Mel said, sounding excited. I looked up and over. Mel had come up beside me while I was staring at the shell. Her head was tilted slightly, the way she did whenever she was recording. My heart stopped. You're live feeding me? I whispered. Mel laughed. Do you all see this? Those are tears running down her face. She was talking to someone else, and in a flash, I realized who. Her new audience. She had been recording me the whole time, and I hadn't known because my glasses were down. Anger exploded inside me. I slashed at her face with my clawed fingers, trying to hook her glasses off. She hit me back, but I managed to slap her hard enough to knock her glasses off and onto the floor. There was more fighting and a lot of shouting, and in the end, Mel picked up her glasses and went home, saying that she didn't ever want to see me again. She didn't hang out with crybaby losers who'd never be famous. As soon as she was gone, I sat on my bed and hard-booted my glasses. The world came back like it had been before. Timestamp, geochords. The dresser told me a bunch of stuff I really didn't care about. So did the windowpane my inbox pinged with a stream of messages, 10 times more than I normally got, mostly from people I didn't know. Instead of answering, I wipe half-dried tears from my cheeks and deleted Mel from my friend list forever. On the carpet lay a dozen or so eggshell fragments, mottled white and purple. One of us must have stepped on the seashell while we fought. I scraped the pieces up off the carpet, but when I looked at them, They told me nothing.
0: Ah, getting the reboot. And our final story this week comes from Nathaniel Tower and it's called A Happy Family. Nathaniel writes fiction, teaches English, and manages the online lit magazine Bartleby Snopes. His short fictions appeared in over 50 online and print magazines. A story of his, The Oaten Hands, was named one of 190 notable stories by story South's Million Writers Award in 2009. And his first novel, A Reason to Kill, just came out in July 2011. The story is read to you by Abner Cunaries. Abner is a writer and voice actor who writes sci-fi, fantasy, pulp, adventure, and is the creator of the weekly cyberpunk pulp adventure serial Cat and Mouse: Guns for Hire at CatandMouseSerial.com. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. So, last but not least, we bring you a happy family by Nathaniel Tower.
4: After 36 hours of labor, my wife gave birth to a boot. It was brown leather, size six. At first I was sure this meant she had been unfaithful, but looking at her sweaty and poop-covered body, I knew better than to question her. So I asked the doctor privately if we could do a paternity test. He made the mistake of announcing the results in front of my wife. Sure enough, the boot was mine. Congratulations, the doctor said. Why didn't you think it was yours? My wife asked. I told her that no one in my family had ever fathered a boot before. You can't be sure of that. She was right. I couldn't be. You could be a little sympathetic, you know. I did just give birth to a boot. She said it with that wet dog post labor look. Come on, it's made of flexible leather. It's not like it had spurs, I retorted, instantly knowing my words were both a triumph and a mistake. I quickly changed the subject by asking the doctor if the boot would grow. It was too small to fit either of us. He said he didn't see why not. We took the boot home the same day, buckling it carefully into the car seat, even though it didn't fit properly. We waited on naming it, We had names picked out. Isabella for a girl and Noah for a boy. Both names were my wife's choice. I wanted Hansel or Gretel. She thought those were stupid names. Neither of her names seemed fitting for the boot. She said that it didn't look like an Isabella or a Noah. I said she just wanted to save those names for a more human-looking baby. How did the doctor not know we were having a boot? I asked as we set the boot into the crib. My wife blamed me at first. This is because you made me eat all that red meat. It's probably because of all those damn vegetables you ate. I'm surprised the kid wasn't a celery stalk. That would have been better than a boot, she muttered. I felt a bit bad that she said that right in front of the boot. I shoot her out of the room to give the boot some rest. On the way out, I couldn't help but think that the custard walls clashed with its skin. After a long talk in the other room, we decided to love the boot as we would any other child. Then I realized that we'd forgotten to turn the baby monitor on. I rushed into the nursery to check on the boot. It was a little stiff when I arrived, but it seemed just as alive as it had been before. As all new parents do, we proudly sent out photos of everything our little boot did, Some people had the nerve to ask for their shower gifts back. I wanted to tell them to go to hell, but my wife said we couldn't, just in case we didn't have a boot next time around. I told her I wanted another boot. After all, what the hell was the point of having one? You couldn't wear it, and you sure couldn't sell it. It was nothing more than a decoration. We could fill it with soil and put a flower in it, I told her one day while we were changing the boot it's our child you're talking about. I could tell she meant business, but I figured she would be closer to it since she had carried it in her belly for nine months. For the next few weeks it was nice because the boot was so quiet. It barely made a noise and required almost no changing at all. We found our lives a lot more manageable than all our friends and relatives had warned us it would be. But then... We started to think that maybe all that silence wasn't good. That our boot wasn't developing like a normal baby should. We called the doctor, but he didn't really know what to say. He seemed surprised that we had kept the thing. Were we supposed to put it up for adoption? We decided that the boot would be better off if we picked a gender and gave it a name. Eventually, we called it Sam, because we weren't quite sure if it was a boy or a girl. We thought it would be best if the boot decided when it got older. After a year, the boot still wasn't talking or walking, and it wasn't eating very much. It didn't respond to Sam, so we tried Noah, Isabella, and Hansel, but it didn't seem to like any of those names either. I think he's depressed, my wife said, convinced the boot was a boy. "'Well, what are we going to do? "'We can't very well take him to a therapist,' I replied, "'conceding the gender of the boot. "'Maybe we should make a sibling for him,' she said with a seductive smile. "'That night we tried our best to make a sibling for the boot. "'Not knowing much about making shoes, we just did what came naturally. "'A month later my wife showed me the positive pregnancy test. "'We went and showed it to the boot,' but he just sat in his crib and stared. We figured he just didn't quite understand what we were driving at, but we went ahead with our plans. All of the doctor's visits went well, and even though we were supposed to be hoping for a boot, I could tell that my wife secretly wanted a little girl she could call Isabella. I thought she was being selfish, that we needed to hope for the best for our first-born, but I knew better than to say such things, especially after last time. When the ninth month rolled around, my wife went into labor. We packed up the car with all the necessities, strapped our little boot into the car seat, and sped off to the hospital. The labor was much more strenuous this time around, and the doctor finally said that my wife needed a C-section. We had both been hoping for a natural childbirth, but the doctor insisted. The next hour was quite intense, but the doctor successfully delivered our second born. My wife, fainted when she saw it, but I beamed with pride. It was beautiful. The boot finally seemed happy when we introduced it to its new baby brother, a healthy size six foot. I was happy too, until they ran away together.
0: Trifecta. Hope you enjoyed. From non-vigilantes beating down nude hooligans to a developmentally delayed boot named Sam. Only on the Drabblecast, folks. Only on the Drabblecast. If you enjoy what we do here each week on the podcast, you can not only show us, but you can help us do it better by making a donation. You are no doubt aware that we rely on the support of listeners such as yourself to pay authors for their work, amongst other production costs. Hit up Drabblecast.org and click any of our donation options. We really do appreciate it, folks. Alright, so each week we pick a favorite 100-character story from the 100-character stories section in our discussion forums, and post it up on Twitter as the weekly winner. This week's winner was Strawman with this one right here. We don't allow no faster-than-light neutrinos in here, says the bartender with a growl. A neutrino walks into a bar. (laughs) Nice one. Try writing one yourself. 100 characters exactly, not counting spaces. Post it in the TwitVic twabble section in our discussion forums, linked off drabblecast.org. If you're not following us on Twitter, follow us at Drabblecast. Alrighty, folks, that's our show. Remember, it's produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks to this week's awesome episode artist, Liz Pennies. Liz has been writing and illustrating since she was capable of holding a crayon. In addition to a growing collection of short stories and articles, she's currently in the process of serializing her novel on a blog that can be found at puertatempest.blogspot.com. Currently, she's made the move back to academia to earn her BA in English in hopes to refine her skills as a writer and expand her network. Appreciate it, Liz. Good luck. All right, weirdos, we'll see you next week. Until then, I'm Norm Sherman, reminding you that you could be a little sympathetic, you know. I did just give birth to a boot.